Good morning. You know, I, uh, I asked Zach, uh, by the way, Zach is in the upper room this morning with uh, some of our worship team. And so if you've not had an opportunity to, um, to do worship there in the upper room, it's, uh, it's a great experience and you need to, you need to try that. Um, I asked him about two years ago if I could, you know, join the praise team. And um, he said, sure, I'll put you on the waiting list. And two years later, I'm beginning to suspect that there's not really a waiting list. Um, so I, I don't know I don't know when that's going to happen. But um, um, sometimes when they lead worship, I just, uh, I just say, that would be so much better if I was up there with them. No, I've never said that once in my life. <laughs> I want to begin a new teaching series today. And it is in, the series is entitled Enduring Passions. 2022 for Evergreen is the year of endurance. And, uh, and, and as we've looked at different things along that theme this year, you know, I've tried to remind you that while endurance sometimes has some negative connotations, I mean, we, we hear the word endurance and we think that it, it's describing a kind of grin and bear it attitude that just sort of suffers through whatever you have to face. But endurance has, has several shades of meaning. And, and really, um, one of the most significant meanings of endurance is a kind of dogged determination to do what's right and important. I'm going to teach a series over the next several weeks entitled Enduring Passions, and I've built this series around uh, what we have as a motto in our church, which is knowing God, sharing life, and changing the world. And around those three phrases, I've, I've shaped this series, and, and I want to begin today with a message entitled Knowing God, Worship. Worship is not just for us... Um, a weekend hobby. It is not uh, really even a religious ritual that we're obligated to fulfill. Um, I do think that in our generation there are a lot of people who who attend church and they they may sing or they might not sing and they they give an hour on a Sunday morning and they consider that they have uh, done worship. I want to see this morning if I can't help you um, broaden your understanding of what worship is because worship is not just uh, the musical part uh, of, a, of, a, of a service that, that kind of serves as a warm-up to the sermon. Uh, in fact, that's not even fair language. Um, worship is not even singing. It's not, it's, not, it's not any of the activities that we do. Worship is the presentation of myself without reservation before a holy God. Now, as we contemplate worship, um, I, I, threw, I just threw another word in there, the word holy. Um, that's another word that has mostly negative connotations in our generation. When people use the word holy, they usually use it in situations like, you know, oh, you're just holier than everybody else. Or, or she has a holier-than-thou attitude. And we, we have this idea of holiness as, as though it's some sort of self-righteous, judgmental mindset that people sort of exude uh, a disdain for all the people who are around them. Uh, that's not holiness. Holiness is an intentionality about living every day the way Jesus lived. In fact, C.S. Lewis, um, there's a collection of his letters that he wrote over the course of his life to a lady friend who lived in America. And in one of those letters, he says this, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? 
I preached a sermon a number of years ago. It wasn't about worship, but, but the week after that sermon, I got an email from a church member. And I don't want to read you the whole email, but I, I pulled it out of my files this week because, um, because there's a, a, just a part of this that captures a little bit what I, of what I mean here. The idea of worship is not um, a Sunday morning hobby. It is uh, an approach to life that involves recognizing that God is God and we are not. In this email that, that I received, that, that I've saved, it's about 15 or 16 years old. Um, at one portion of the email, this parent said, I want so very much for my children to catch on to the fact that it is not about rules or even behavior. It's about heart. God wants all of it, every shred. He doesn't want some of your heart. He doesn't want just most of your heart. He wants all of it. It sounds extreme because it is. He wants all of us. He made us, and that is when our hearts sing. And yes, it hurts. And yes, it is hard. But it is so very worth it. When He has all of our heart, the behavior naturally follows. Just when we think He has all of it, the Holy Spirit shines His light on yet another area, and on it goes. Not a safe life. In fact, a very painful, joyous, difficult, wonderful life. Sometimes I fear we inoculate people with just enough religion so they don't catch the true heart of God. We have failed as a church if coming to worship in this place inoculates you and gives you the sense that you have fulfilled your obligation, that you've done your duty and that you can now go on about the business of your life. You have not worshipped because you came here today. You have not worshipped because you either sang or didn't sing the songs. You have not worshipped if you leave an offering. You have not worshipped if you survived the sermon. Worship is something that mostly is visible only to God Himself. We're going to be in the first in the 16th chapter of First Chronicles today. This is an Old Testament worship service that um, that we're going to kind of walk through, and I want to show you just three things there. But I need to set it up historically. This worship service is because the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God in the world was being returned to Jerusalem, and David is king over Israel. Now, David's rule in, in the life of Israel, that was the golden age. Israel was never more economically prosperous than when David was king. They were never more uh, militarily uh, at strength than when David was king. It really was the pinnacle of, of Israel's political national life in the Old Testament. But 20 years before this chapter, there was, there, were, there was different leadership in Israel. And in a battle with a nation of, of their enemies called the Philistines, the unthinkable happened. Using the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a place that, that was a, it was a chest. But inside the chest, they stored some valuable artifacts from, from their history. There was a jar that contained manna. From the wilderness experience there were there were some 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 relics like that that they had preserved in that chest but on top of the chest was what was called the mercy seat and it was it was the throne of god in in on the earth now when when moses built the tabernacle that movable place of worship the ark was, give, God gave very specific instructions about how the ark was to be cared for, how it was to be moved from place to place. And the ark's proper place was in what was called the Holy of Holies, the secret place in the tabernacle. And then after David, eventually the secret place in the temple, it was kept there because that was where God's presence was in an unfiltered way. It was impossible for a 
a regular person in his sin to, to breach that space and to be in that place where, where the ark was because uh, he, he couldn't survive in his sin in the presence of a, of a perfect and holy God. Now, in a battle against the Philistines, 20 years before this chapter that we're going to look at this morning, they had this brilliantly stupid idea. And that was to take the Ark of the Covenant and to treat it like a good luck charm. And so they took it out of the tabernacle and they took it to the front lines of the battlefield. Because surely, you know, God can see better if we give him a front row seat. Well, the unthinkable happened. The Philistines won the battle, defeated Israel, and stole, they captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it back to their own nation, Philistia. Well, long story short, that didn't work out too well for the Philistines. Um, and the reason it didn't work out is because this was not some idol from some false regional god somewhere. This was the throne of the living God, the Holy One, who spoke creation into existence by the power of his word. So the Philistines did the logical thing. They brought it back. Spoils of war and all of that, but they brought it to the border of Israel. They crossed the border and came to the first little border village that they could find. And they said, hey, we're bringing the ark. We're leaving it here. We're out. And they left. Well, this little village of people, they were thrilled. The ark of God is in our town. And so they did the dumbest thing they could do. They popped the top and looked at it. Well, see, there are very strict rules about the ark because the lesson was to approach the ark was to approach God. And you don't do that flippantly. You don't do that casually. You don't just, you know, you don't just bebop into God's presence and say, what's shaking? <laughs> they pop the top on the ark. Some people start to die. They close it. They back away. And they do basically what the Philistines did. They send a message to Jerusalem and say, hey, we got the ark, came back from the Philistines, uh, come and get it, because we don't want it here. So the people came, and they brought the ark out of that little village, and they took it into the home of one who accepted the responsibility to protect and preserve the ark, and it stayed in his house for 20 years. Well, David eventually becomes king, and one of his first things, he had this radical idea. That radical idea was, if we want God to bless us, we need to do things God's way. There's a principle here, folks. If we want God to bless us, we got to quit living any old way we want and asking him to bless our agenda. We need to buy into his agenda because we know he'll bless that. David said, if we want God to bless us, if we're, we're the people of God, but if we want that to be played out in reality, we need to do things God's way. we got to get the ark back to Jerusalem. It needs to be in the Holy of Holies. That's where it belongs. Well, there were some hiccups in that story as well. But eventually the ark makes its way home. And David directs a worship service. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Join me in that chapter because I want you to see the elements of, of worship. And I hope that, that at the end of this lesson, uh, you realize that, that sort of the, um, the standard approach to worship that you may have in your head uh, has really been inadequate. Because worship has some, some real practical elements that, that we often miss. The ark is coming back triumphantly to Israel. David has, uh, has conquered uh, his enemies, and he's celebrating. This entire chapter is related to the worship that happens. We're just going to start with verse 23 and, uh, and look at a section of this worship experience and see what we can draw from it. The first part is what I've called the beauty of praise. In verses 23 through 27, it says this, Sing to the Lord all the earth, Proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. 
Now, even at the height of Israel's history, they were pretty much a politically insignificant nation. And yet, they had something about themselves that nobody else had, and that was a particular relationship with the true God. It is the very thing that set them apart and made them distinct. Here in worship, David begins in, in an interesting way. In these verses of, of pure praise, he does something that we need to pay attention to. He celebrates what God has done in the history of his people. And then he anticipates what God still has in store. You see, when you got up this morning and put on your clothes and decided that you were going to go to church, you didn't do that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you didn't do that as just a standalone episode that just fills a Sunday morning. What you did was you made a choice to come into this place and be shoulder to shoulder with a lot of other followers of Jesus who are here because we, have, we have all have this lineage, this heritage of what God has done in the history of his people, among his people. See, we've, we've inherited that. Whether you heard about Jesus from your mom and dad or whether it was your grandma that told you or your granddad took you fishing and led you to the Lord, whether it was a Sunday school teacher that you had when you were a boy or, or, or a neighbor that invited you to vacation Bible school, somewhere along the way, somebody's standing in this line of faith that, that stretches back all the way to, to the beginning, somebody brought you into that line. And when you came today, whether you thought about it consciously or not, you are standing in that flow of faith. But it doesn't stop here. We don't finish and then just go on about our business and get on back to real life. From this moment in this place, worship is aware of something that has not yet happened that God has in store for his people. Part of the reason we stay faithful is because this baton of faith has been handed to us from those who have gone before, but we are to pass it to those who come after. And this line, this heritage is unbroken until the day that the church gathers around the throne. Listen, David never does worship without calling the people to remember and to anticipate. Memory is a, is, a, is a spiritual virtue. In the Old Testament, every time something significant happened, God would instruct them to, to pile up stones, to build an altar, to, to create a pillar. Because the idea was, as their sons and daughters in succeeding generations would come by, they'd say, they'd say Daddy, what, what's that pile of stones for? And the father had the opportunity to tell the story, to relive the great times that God had stepped into the lives of his people. We're to, our worship is a part of that awareness of what has gone before that allows us to be in this place and this awe-inspiring responsibility of what God is doing in our lives so that there will be those who are able to come after us in the faith. Verse 23 is a remarkably Christian-sounding verse. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good news to his salvation from day to day. That verse could be in the New Testament. It's an important verse because it gives uh, a reminder that we are not to feel defeated. We are to live in triumph and victory, even in a generation like ours when we wonder if the, the statistics are true, if the church is really in decline, if, if Christianity is on its way out. Let me tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, it is not. The whole earth is needed to do justice to this theme. So he calls all of creation to join in this praise. In verse 24, he says, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. There's a real note of pride here. But pride is only bad when it is the opposite of humility. Here, pride is the opposite of shame. We are not to be embarrassed about who we are as the people of Jesus Christ. There is a pride because God has done something extraordinary in the cross. He has done something extraordinary in our lives. He has done something extraordinary in a place called Evergreen. And he is not finished with extraordinary stuff. 
There should be a pride in that. There should be a sense that we are the winners. We walk around with our heads down like the world is going to have the last word, the, the final say. I'm here to tell you, they will not. In verse 27, he says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. These are abstract qualities to us, but they actually are a part of God tangibly. Think about it this way. Splendor and majesty, those are words that are, that are frankly kind of hard to, to define. Um, we say, well, well, a king has majesty. I mean, we call him your majesty, so, so he must have majesty. But, but here's the thing about an earthly king. If you take away the robes and the crowns and the thrones and, and all the fancy stuff, if you strip him down to his underwear, majesty is not the word that will come to mind. You see, his majesty is external. It is, it's been added to him. And yet when we worship the true God, his majesty is intrinsic. It is because of who he is. Nothing is added to him. You could never take away his throne, his crown, his royal robes. But if you could, it wouldn't matter because God's majesty doesn't come from the trappings. The trappings are granted significance because they're a part of him. Splendor and majesty belong to him. You see, there's beauty in praise. And here's, let me see if I can explain it this way. Praise is not just natural for believers, but I think it's a necessary response because praise is what allows us to more completely enjoy the thing that we're, that we're thinking about. All right, let me put it, let me explain it this way. You ever had, you ever, you ever had a, a football game on your television screen and it's your favorite team? And you've been waiting for the game all week and you've been listening to the previews and, and, and you're getting ready and it's the big, it's the big game and, and you, you get in front of your television and, and it's, it's neck and neck. The teams are battling. It, it's coming right down to the wire. And the quarterback drops back. There's under a minute to play. He threads the needle with a pass to a wide receiver that breaks a tackle and goes all the way to the end zone. And your team wins. Well, that was pleasant. If that's the way you respond, you're not a true fan. What do you do? What do you, yes, yes, you're jumping, you're dancing, you're screaming, yes, you're yelling at the television. Why? Because to express that brings the enjoyment, the fulfillment of that experience, it brings it to a new level. I genuinely don't understand how somebody comes to church and crosses their arms and sit back during the, during the music and doesn't sing. I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe you can explain it to me in private one of these days. Maybe you can pull me aside and, and, and tell me because I'm, I'm, I'm stepping on somebody's toes right now. But, but honestly, when you walked into this place this morning, you see, God, God isn't confined to this space. You don't have to come here to experience him. But he has said that he'll meet with us here. He's not confined here, but, but of the 8 billion people on the earth today, God in his majesty somehow carves out the time and space to meet with Evergreen in this spot at this moment. You may be yelling at that television, but have you ever actually been to a game? You go to that stadium and it's got 80,000 people. Well, now everything that you feel is magnified. Your excitement is ratcheted up. You, you yell and scream because the noise has been ratcheted up. The thrill of the moment has been ratcheted up. Listen, I have people tell me all the time, I can worship God at home by myself. Absolutely you can. 
But we come here because we do it better when it's ratcheted up. You can watch church on television same way you watch the evening news. Please don't watch the evening news. <laughs> but by definition, you're an observer. Worship is a participation sport. And we can't do it as observers. And that's why I don't understand how we can come into this room and just stand back while everybody else, while, while, while the presence of God sweeps through. Do you know the presence of God is a really extraordinary reality in one mysterious way? The presence of God can be so heavy that one person weeps from the encounter and the person sitting next to them is untouched and unmoved entirely. It is a remarkable thing the way that happens. Why? Because the presence of God only floods the spaces that are open to the presence of God. So this is a sign to the Holy Spirit that no thanks, I'm just here to observe. You say, well, is this sermon really about singing? No, it's not really about singing. But I tell you what, if you don't sing, you need to get your act together. You need to step up your game. You came to the stadium to be shoulder to shoulder with the rest of us to experience a presence of God at a level and in a way that is more difficult to do by yourself. There is a beauty to praise. Praise needs to be spoken. It needs to be celebrated. Evangelism, we could talk about that, that's a different sermon, but evangelism is simply everyday conversational praise. It's praising the goodness of God with other people listening. That's what evangelism is. Besides the beauty of praise, there's also the beauty of holiness. Look at verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Now, just a couple of phrases that I want, I want to talk about here. First is the word ascribe. It does not mean give to God glory and, and honor. Uh, the word ascribe means to assign or associate, to acknowledge. We don't give God glory. We acknowledge that God has glory. So when he's calling us to ascribe, he's simply giving us the assignment of announcing what we have come to know about God. When Jesus was in Jerusalem and the people were shouting and worshiping and praising him and the, the Pharisees were like, you got to stop these people. You got you to shut them up. Jesus said it, it wouldn't do any good. Because even if the people stopped shouting and praising, the very rocks would start to cry out. Why? Because creation gets it. Do you realize that men and women are the only created things on this planet that don't understand who God is? Creation doesn't have any worries about that. You say, well, you're, you're, you're making an inanimate object into, a, into something that's alive. No, I'm not suggesting that the rocks are all alive. The rocks don't have mouths to offer praise because that's not their job. It's our job to offer praise. Jesus was simply saying, as creation burst out with the reality of what God is doing, if we don't do our jobs, creation would literally be forced to cry out. We are to ascribe to him those things, but listen to him. We are ascribed to the Lord the glory, do his name. Listen, to give God the glory, do his name is not just a lifetime task, it's an eternal task. You ever read in the, in the book of Revelation those, those glimpses of, 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 of worship in heaven? I mean, they are singing, they are celebrating, they are bringing honor and glory to God. They're ascribing to Him all the time. Listen, if you don't like those activities here, you're not going to enjoy heaven much. 
Imagine what heaven is going to be like. You ever been to a, I think about this sometimes, you ever been to a place that was so awe-inspiring that you were not only speechless, but it was actually hard to breathe? I mean, I've been to, I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I've been to, I've been to the largest falls in South America in, in Brazil, and, and, and I stood there, and I, it was hard to breathe because it was so awesome. I was so awestruck. Now, I'm pretty sure that when, 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 when I get to heaven, I think I'm going to be a, a great singer. <laughs> and I'm going to sing all the time. In fact, I don't think I'm going to be able to hold it back. I think it's just going to break out of me. I don't think I'm going to be able to, to not sing. But in my mind, the first worship service that I go to I don't know if I'll be able to sing. I don't know if I'll be able to breathe. Because he's, he's painting a picture here of worship, not just that we do some stuff and, and hope that it is pleasing to God. It's that we have prepared our hearts to stand in a place where we ponder who God is until we're overwhelmed by the reality of it. We sang songs this morning and knowing what, what was coming in this lesson and I was listening to the songs, I was like, oh my stars, that's, that's it. We're, we're, we, have, we have this good Father and when we ponder His power and his might and, and his love for us. It, it, it shakes us up. How do we come to church and leave just checking the box and not be changed by the encounter? He says here, the last part of verse 29, worship the Lord in holy attire. Now, I heard a sermon when I was a kid that was the, the text of the sermon, and I remember it because even as a kid, I, I, I couldn't figure out what I thought of it. The entire sermon was a sermon against wearing blue jeans in church. You're supposed to worship the Lord in holy attire. That means you, you dress to the nines, suit, tie, the whole works. Now listen, I'm not against you wearing a suit and tie to church if you want to do that. But I'm pretty sure this verse is not about suits and ties versus blue jeans. In the Old Testament, there were very specific instructions given for the clothes that the priest had to wear as they conducted worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple on behalf of the people of God. The robes of the priests were were trimmed in brightly color in bright colors. They were they were sewn with certain kinds of thread. There there was there was a, a presentation. Their their array, if you will, was designed to explain to people that there was a right way, an appropriate way, to approach God in His place of worship. It was really the visible preparation to meet with God. The intentional planning to enter his presence. Frankly, I don't think God cares whether you're wearing a tie or whether you're wearing blue jeans. What he does care about is whether you spent 10 seconds before you got here preparing your heart to meet with him. You see, the only way we can come to church and leave unchanged is if we came to church unprepared to change. I mentioned the the waterfalls, but it could be the Grand Canyon, it could be any of, any of those places, it could be the top of a, a 14,000 foot mountain looking out in every direction as far as the eye can see. This is the generation we live in. We go to those places that are so awe-inspiring, they're meant to pull our attention 
to the Creator. And you know what we do instead now? We take selfies. Because whether it's the top of a mountain or before a majestic waterfall or, or standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, somehow the moment has no meaning unless I'm the center of the picture. Folks, let me tell you something. Worship is when you approach the throne of grace, and by definition, you and I are not the center of the picture. We've got to quit treating God like he's a, a, a tourist attraction, and we're going to run into church, and we're going to meet with God, and we're going to take a selfie so that we can show everybody that we were there. We have so trivialized the truth of who God is. We've taken theology when we do it at all, and at Evergreen, we do it. We do theology, but most churches do not. We've taken theology in this culture, and if we do it at all, we, we, we treat it as an intellectual exercise, and we prop our feet up on the, on, the, on the coffee table, and we lean back, and we contemplate theories of the atonement. Listen, it's not theories of the atonement as an intellectual exercise that should, that should cause us to, to enter into God's presence. It's the fact that we are atoned for at all by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came from the Father to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be restored. If we contemplate the atonement, it should bring us to our knees. No space here for selfies, for coffee table conversations. This is something awesome. Holiness is nothing more than living the life of Jesus daily on purpose. But there's one more thing here. There's the beauty of judgment. Now, judgment is another word that has negative connotations. We think judgment has to do with penalty and punishment and a mean-spirited God who's waiting to jump on us. The fact of the matter is, the judgment that he's going to speak of in these next verses are not the fear of an enemy, but the recognition that, that there is one who will judge. And in the Old Testament, they understood that judgment is how we take a broken world that's messed up and we set it right. Judgment simply means that, that we take what's in disarray, what's in disharmony, what's, ha- what's marked by injustice and violence. Judgment makes those things right. Verse 30, tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be joyful and the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and everything it contains. Let the field rejoice and everything that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy in the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his faithfulness is everlasting. Two verses I want to emphasize here. Verse 30, he starts by saying, tremble before him. What does that mean? Let me tell you something. We need to latch on to verses like this because when the Bible says tremble before him, that is the only thing that will guarantee against Christianity by mere habit. We cannot fall into the trap of just doing church to check off the box to take care of our our weekly obligation. We will not fall into that trap if we approach God and tremble just a little bit. Now, this is not the fear of an enemy. This is awestruck by the power and the presence of who we're contemplating. Listen, I've never met the President of the United States. I've never stood in the Oval Office But I suspect, regardless of who he happens to be at the time, if I ever get the opportunity to go shake the hand of the president in the Oval Office, I'm going to have butterflies in my stomach. I'm going to have have a little bit of nerves when that happens. How can we possibly be nervous about going into an office that's shaped in an oval? And not give a moment's pause to coming to church where we intend to meet with Almighty God. One of the things that people ask me, and they usually, they usually ask me kind of jokingly. But one of the questions I get pretty often, people say, um, 
Are you nervous before you preach? Now, I understand what they're saying. They're asking if I'm nervous about speaking in public. Psychology Today, a few years ago, did a survey. And in their survey, they listed the top 10 fears in American life. Did you know that number two on the list was the fear of death? You know what number one was? Fear of speaking in public. Americans would literally rather die than speak in public. <laughs> so I know what they're asking when they ask me that. They'll say, do you get nervous before you preach? And, and here's, here's sometimes the answer that I give. I say, yes, I get nervous before I preach, but not for the reasons you think. Frankly, the public speaking part of what I do doesn't bother me. You are just not that scary. I'll tell you why, why I get nervous before I preach. And I can't really explain this because I've never been able to really pin it down. But in, an, in a really extraordinary way, the God who created the universe simply by the power of his word, he put his living word in a book he calls it the Bible. It's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And there was a time in my life when he pulled me aside. And he said, take my book and teach it to my people. When I get butterflies in my stomach before I preach, it's not because I'm scared of you. It's because I tremble at the responsibility of having instructions from the author to take his book and teach it on his behalf. You know how I'm able to do it? I talked to him about this one time. And he said, here's what, here's what you need to remember. My spirit is actually the one teaching through you. And he's taking the power of my word and he's implanting that word in the lives of people who also are receiving it with my spirit. Folks, I'm simply, I'm simply a part of the transition process of the author bringing his book and by the power of his spirit, teaching it in a way that it implants itself in your life and brings change to who you are. Now, if you come to church and say, we're going to sing a few songs, it's not unpleasant, and the preacher's going to preach for a little while, and it's, it's not too bad, and then I'm going to be finished, and I can mark this obligation off for the week, and I'll come back next week and do it again. You have attended church. You have not worshipped. Worship is preparing to come into a place that God has already agreed to meet with his people, to be shoulder to shoulder in this stadium as we together ratchet up the experience of encountering God. We sing together. We celebrate together. We fellowship together. We learn from His Word together. And when that is by the power of the Spirit that is in this place, and you have opened up to receive that, you've been prepared to make that encounter, you then have worshipped because you, by definition, walk out of this room different than you came in. And it is impossible, I do not apologize for this statement, it is impossible to have an encounter with the living God and not be changed. There's a pastor that I really love from the 19th century, a British minister by the name of W.E. Sangster. I have a number of his... Uh, books of sermons. He's not hugely famous, but, um, uh, but I, I, love, I love his sermons. 
but I didn't know his life story until just a few years ago. His daughter, his name is W.E. Sangster. His daughter is Margaret Sangster Fippen. And she wrote, uh, she wrote about her father after his death, and, and it was fascinating to, to, hear some, to read some of the stories that, that she described. He had a disease in the second half of his life. Uh, I don't know precisely what the name of it was. I'm not sure they knew then. Um, but it was a, a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. That is, his muscles would gradually waste away. Uh, his voice would fail. His throat would eventually become unable to swallow. Until finally, the very muscles that make the lungs inhale and exhale would fail, and, and he died. During those days, as his health began to fail, he continued um, participating in, in kingdom work as best he could. He could still write, and, and he was apparently a, a, a great prayer warrior. She says, she records that she heard him more than once pray, Lord, let me stay in the struggle. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general, but just give me a little regiment to lead. He wrote articles and books. He helped organize prayer cells across England. When people would pity him for his disease, he would say, I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. But really, this is the part that I wanted you to hear. Eventually, his legs became useless. His voice went away completely. He could still hold a pen, and he would write as best he could. On Easter morning, the last Easter of his life, just a few weeks before he died, he wrote a letter to his daughter, and in that letter he said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout that he is risen. But then he wrote these words. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Enduring passions are those things that are so deeply important to us that we are doggedly determined to never let them wind down. If we are to know God, knowing God starts and ends in worship. You maybe haven't read the book of Revelation recently. Maybe you have. It's kind of coming back into vogue these days. Let me suggest this week that you find a quiet place and read again Revelation chapters 4 and 5. It is a glimpse of a worship service in heaven. You'll find these very elements that David talked about. The beauty of praise, the beauty of holiness, and the beauty of judgment. Spend this week talking to God about your approach to worship. And ask him, what needs to be changed? What do I need to do differently? Lord, how can I go from attending church to entering the very throne room of grace itself and worshiping the God who created the universe? As we go out from this place today, if we're going to be a church, a real church, if we're going to be an authentic, kingdom-building, kingdom-advancing, Great Commission, missional church, 
it starts with us figuring out how to worship. And so, we're going to sing a song. Our pastors will be here. If there's somebody that you need to talk to, we'll be here available. If you need to know Jesus, we'd love to introduce you. If you need to be a part of a church, we'd love to tell you how you can be a part of this one. But here's why we're singing today. I want to give you a chance before you leave this morning to open up your mouth and join in praise. Because that is the key to us moving in this direction, knowing God, because we have learned how to be a people who worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this moment in time. Father, I pray that, that right now that you would move among us, but especially as we, as we offer prayer praise to you as we sing one more song this morning before we make our way out father find here not just voices raised find here hearts opened to the presence of your spirit moving within us father you are marked by splendor and majesty. And while we are tempted to be speechless in your presence, we ask that you give us the power and the privilege to move beyond speechlessness, to vocalize the praise that emerges from deep in our soul. Father, receive this final expression of worship from your people called Evergreen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.